Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. After World War II, one Connecticut community made a conscious effort to reject racial segregation. The founders of Village Creek in Norwalk created a cooperative neighborhood which promised not to discriminate based on race, color, creed, or politics. Over the next decades, the villagers faced criticism from many quarters, but the community survived and thrives today. In this episode, Natalie Belanger and Melika Bloom of the Connecticut Historical Society take a look at the founding of Village Creek and some of the challenges it faced over the decades. It's cold and gray outside, but this winter at the Connecticut Historical Society, you can bask in memories of summer. Our latest exhibition is a traveling show from the Smithsonian Institution called Patios, Pools, and the Invention of the American Backyard. It chronicles the ways that outdoor living for Americans transformed after the end of World War II. The backyard as we know it developed in the 1950s, as America was emerging from the shadow of World War II. It was shaped by facts of post-war life, returning veterans, the GI Bill, and an affluent and growing middle class. Builders met the demand for housing by creating new suburbs. Together, these forces led to a dramatic rise in homeownership. In Connecticut, the homeownership rate rose from 40% in 1940 to 62% in 1960. It's easy to look back on this period as a kind of golden age. The hardships of the Great Depression and the war were over. Americans were prosperous. They had leisure time. And especially for those moving from the cities to the suburbs for the first time, homeownership meant the luxury of privacy. Patios and backyards replaced front porches as a center of social life. The backyard became an extension of the home, a place for entertaining, cooking, and relaxing, away from the bustle of the street. Magazines promoted the modern backyard, while companies quickly developed products designed to lessen the burden of maintaining these outdoor spaces. Of course, when land, resources, and income were limited, backyards often looked very different than what was pictured in magazines. A private backyard oasis was not a reality for everyone. In cities like Hartford, shared public space, like playgrounds, parks, pools, and porches, were where residents played, ate, relaxed, and socialized. There was both a class and a racial element at play. As many white Connecticut residents were flocking to the suburbs, people of color were having trouble purchasing homes of their own. Organizations, such as the National Association of Real Estate Boards and the Federal Housing Authority, were complicit in using restrictive policies during the housing boom after World War II. Redlining, blockbusting, and exclusionary real estate practices maintained segregated neighborhoods, and people of color struggled to see homes and get mortgages under the illusion that property value was directly associated to race. The model of the new suburban development was Levittown, built in the late 1940s on Long Island, a mass-produced community of over 17,000 homes. The Levitts built other developments, including in Pennsylvania and Puerto Rico. Their business model was emulated by builders across America. Levittown houses featured uniform, interchangeable, factory-assembled parts and pre-cut lumber. 
As a result, the company could hire laborers rather than skilled carpenters at its work sites. Even the landscaping was mass-produced. Grass lawns were easy to plant in newly dug yards, and the green expanses increased home values. Despite their innovative business thinking, the Levitts instituted restrictive covenants in their communities, forbidding anyone other than those of the Caucasian race to purchase rent or use the properties. Along with this architectural uniformity, Levittown was racially homogenous, and for a time, the suburb became a symbol of segregation. There were some exceptions to this model, and one of them was right here in Connecticut. The Connecticut Historical Society is fortunate to have recently acquired the records of the Village Creek community in Norwalk. Our exhibit developer, Melika Bloom, combed through this archive while planning our exhibit, and she joins me to talk about this special community. So, Melika, tell me about Village Creek and why it's so special. So, Village Creek is this quiet little neighborhood located on the Long Island Sound in the south part of Norwalk, Connecticut. It sits on about 37 acres between these two tidal inlets, and it's a stop on the Connecticut Freedom Trail, and was even added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2010. Why was it added to the register? So, for two reasons. One, because of its mid-century modern houses, but also its experimental cooperative structure, which focused on racial and religious tolerance. Village Creek was founded by a man named Roger Wilcox, along with his parents, sisters, and sisters' husbands, who felt strongly that racial and religious discrimination was simply wrong. When they decided to buy land to build a community, they also decided that the community should be a cooperative based on the Rochdale principles of equality and non-discrimination. Okay, could you enlighten me as to what the Rochdale principles are? Because I have never lived in a co-op or participated in one. Sure. So the Rochdale principles are a set of ideals for the operation of cooperatives. Um, They're still in use today by cooperatives across the world, Um, but they were first set out in 1844 by the Rochdale Society of Equitable Pioneers in Rochdale, England. And these ideals have formed the basis for the principles on which many cooperatives um, have been founded upon and continue to operate on. Um, There are seven main principles. These are open and voluntary membership, democratic member control, member economic participation, autonomy and independence, education, training and information, cooperation among cooperatives, and concern for community. Okay, so that's a lot of directives. (laughs) How did Village Creek put all of that into practice? What did they actually do on the ground? So the Village Creek community consisted of people of all ages, colors, and backgrounds, This included artists, lawyers, doctors, veterans, teachers, professors, plumbers, factory workers, the list really could go on. Basically, it was a very diverse community, which was their initial goal, and the diversity benefited the community in many ways. For example, it helped to avoid the need to contract out labor, because surely there was a Village Creek resident who could tackle the project. Part of this cooperative nature of Village Creek meant that committees were formed, and these committees sort of overruled the the everyday and weekly and monthly life of how Village Creek operated. Um, Some of these committees included the Architectural Control Committee, the Harbor Committee, the Beach Committee, Social Committee, the Maintenance Committee, Nominating Committee, Security Committee, Playground Committee. That list could also go on. Residents banded together to organize annual parties, holiday gatherings, trick-or-treat extravaganzas, And they also organized against large companies like CLNP and other small businesses that were threatening the ecology of their waterfront and general quality of life for their residents. How successful were their efforts against big businesses, against the utilities like CLNP? Um, Yeah. How far did that go and, and did they have any success? 
The Village Creekers fought quite hard against CLNP, and they tried to block their efforts to build a coal power plant on the nearby Manresa Island. They eventually lost the big fight. The power plant was still built, but they won a small fight. It was built with environmental regulations that were virtually unheard of at the time. I don't know the specifics, the engineering specifics to that, but uh, I know that it was one of the best in the country. Um, Unfortunately, there was an oil spill in 1969, 10 years after Village Creek was founded, that really did enormous damage to their waterfront, killing off important marsh grasses, which released a lot of mud into the harbor that they had been working so hard to dredge and maintain. So they were kind of right in their desire to not have this plant built right at their doorstep. Right, right. And and a lot of the things in our collection are the dredging reports. This is uh, pre right. the pre um, oil spill, so they they cared a lot about maintaining their harbor. So I think this was a big hit for them. Because their location on the water was really central to their choice of that. Right. That that um, right. A lot of the residents. Of a lot of the residents owned boats and moved there because they wanted space that they could sail their boats year round. So yeah. Um, can you tell me more about? The collection we have here at CHS, like what exactly is in it and how is it how is it useful to researchers? Sure. So our collection of materials on Village Creek is large and growing. Our initial amount of materials came in a few years ago, and we actually recently just got a whole nother slew of materials, um, which I have not looked at yet. But the collection that I have seen holds records of all aspects of life in the community, This includes records of parking lot restoration projects, board meeting minutes, budgets, bylaws, harbor dredging, as I mentioned before, affidavits, their uh, annual newsletter, records of purchasing ladybugs and praying mantis to help eliminate mosquitoes and other pests, which I thought was fascinating, and a whole folder on controversies, which is, of course, my favorite. But there's actually this one line of text surrounding Village Creek that I want to focus on today. I came across this line when I first started doing research on Village Creek, and it's a pretty progressive statement to make, especially in the middle of the 20th century, before the civil rights movement gains traction, when our country is struggling with how to treat returning Black World War II veterans, before the Supreme Court rules that segregated schools are unconstitutional with Brown versus the Board of Education, during a time when housing segregation and discrimination in Connecticut is at an all-time high, and Jim Crow laws in the South are alive and well. It's a statement that will shape and define Village Creek in many ways, and a statement they will struggle with as well. And the statement's from their 1949 prospectus, where the original community members state, and I quote, But above all else, we wanted a different type of community with a completely democratic character. No discrimination because of race, color, creed, or politics. This principled stance made them heroes to some and enemies to other, but it also made them pioneers in the movement for equal rights. You said it made them enemies to some. Can you elaborate on that? Who could possibly be opposed to this kind of statement? It seems to us the kind of thing today we would very much agree and agree with and applaud. Definitely. So Village Creek's inclusivity and, and liberalism was interpreted by onlookers in some interesting ways. This micro-utopia was certainly not immune to the criticism of the outside world. So in the 1970s, there was this anti-communist civil servant named Alan Dykeman, who for six years, shortly before Election Day, issued broadsides and took out advertisements in the local paper, the Norwalk Hour, accusing Village Creek and various residents of communist subversion. He would do this every year before Election Day. Yeah, for a a handful of years. Um, 
And so there was this one advertisement in the local paper, um, and this, these bold, big block letters, and it read, capitalized, Village Creek, colon, is it communist or is it liberal? So you can, it's, yeah. But that wasn't really the worst of it. Um, Dykeman then really dug his heels into one Village Creek resident named Nora Engel, who was a Fairfield County Sheriff at the time and had previously served on city council. She passed away in 2016, but was remembered as an influential Democratic reformist. She ran the 1980 Connecticut presidential primary campaign for U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy, and then she made her way up to working at the nation's capital in 1987, where she played a key role in easing standards for refugee eligibility of Russian Jewish immigrants and was a problem solver on Mexican immigration. And this is all while she was still living at her house on Dock Road in Village Creek. It might have been a weekend house at that point, but... So anyway, this anti-communist guy, Alan Dykeman, distributed this 11-page document titled The Nora Engel Story, What the Norwalk Hour Refused to Print. And from what I've read, he... He, he printed this and put it on people's windshields all across the town. So it was a widely distributed document. He was doing a lot of work. He was, he was putting a lot of effort yeah. into getting this out there. The publication posed some pretty serious accusations against Engel and asked her very pointed, intrusive questions. He calls out other Democrats, too, in this document and chastises them for their support of LGBTQA bills and amendments in the state, among other things. Engel was quoted in the New York Times about these vicious verbal attacks, saying that they were a, quote, invasion of her privacy, and quote, we are not communists, referring to her family, but also to the fellow residents of Village Creek. So the story got some attention because it's obviously being covered in the New York Times. A lot of the Village Creek residents are people who, some of them work in the city or they have ties to New York City, right? Um, does the collection we have here shed any more light on this particular conflict? Did you find anything that referenced that in the collection? I did. So I found this amazing draft of a typewritten letter in our collection, which from what I can tell was never actually sent to Alan Dykeman, but is still quite notable. I'm going to read a few parts from this. An open letter to Alan R. Dykeman. Dear Mr. Dykeman, you have waged a long and relentless campaign against Village Creek, a community about which we are justifiably proud. It has always been and continues to be a place that is peopled by individuals of varied colors, ethnic backgrounds, and political persuasions. To implement your hate campaign, you've dredged up, quote, evidence from the McCarthy era of the 1950s by self-appointed inquisitors who are remembered today as shameful aberrations in American history. When you ran out of so-called facts, you resorted to innuendos, convoluted arguments, and sly damning questions, usually with no relevance to anything. All this to effect a mindless, destructive smear against 65 families and their homes and neighborhood. We believe this is contrary to the best American tradition. It is irresponsible, reckless, and dishonorable. And I'll pause and say that in parentheses, the letter says, letter could end here, but it continues. Perhaps you can better understand the insidious nature of what you are doing if you were to reverse the events for a moment and pose some questions for you to answer. So then basically in this letter, Village Creek takes all of the slander and questions that Dykeman had thrown at Nora Engel and reversed them on him. They ask if he was ever a member of the KKK or the John Birch Society, if he had ever been diagnosed with mental illness, where his income comes from, what his wife's maiden name is, his criminal history, how he paid for the advertisements, if he'd ever been fired from a job, etc. And these questions are ridiculous, right? But I think that's their point. These are similar to the kinds of questions he was asking Nora Engel to answer publicly. Right. right? Okay. Right. Exactly. 
And so then the letter continues even further, saying that they of course don't want him or expect him to answer any of these questions because that would be unfair, and ends with comparing his tactics to that of the Inquisition and the Salem witch hunts. That's a pretty powerful accusation, but that it really does put the whole situation into perspective. Legal action against Dykeman was considered by Village Creek residents, but they chose to live with the attacks, which did end after a few years. I don't know what caused the end to them, but they did stop. I think it's also important to note that according to the initial founder, Roger Wilcox, and I quote, Village Creek as a whole has never taken positions on political issues. The community has fought to protect that position. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. They say in their, so Wilcox says that they don't take political positions, they want to stay above political issues, but their entire um, way of life is sort of inherently political because what this, the uh, Dykeman um, controversy shows is that even if the Village Creek residents are trying to stay out of politics, politics is going to come looking for them because their lifestyle, at least to him, appears to be tinged with communism, okay? Right. Um, what other, do they get dragged into any other kind of political firestorms because of their their stance? Yeah, so let's back up a decade to the 1960s and look at Village Creek's covenant and its role in maintaining an integrated and diverse community and what could have been a huge lawsuit against Village Creek on the grounds of racial discrimination, which sounds kind of crazy considering their entire... Founding was based upon inclusivity. Right. So in 1961, Charles Vaught, who was a prominent black man from New York City, made an offer on a home in Village Creek. Um, it was on a specific road in Village Creek, and he was denied purchase of the house. The house was in a section of a community that already had the appropriate balance, according to the covenant, of black and white families living there. And so his purchase of the home would upset the balance on that street. So... Basically, the Homeowners Association feared that if they allowed Vaught to purchase this home, that street would become segregated. Um, They offered Vaught a house in a different area of Village Creek, but he refused. Vaught then filed a lawsuit against Village Creek on the grounds of discrimination. The case made news headlines and was considered a sophisticated racial issue. This was, what was coined at the time, discrimination to prevent segregation. Let's pause from Vought's story, though, and think about that statement for a second. Discrimination to prevent segregation. How do you maintain diversity without inadvertently being exclusive at times? We don't actually have an answer to that, but Village Creek tried hard to democratically address this issue. 
In fact, Village Creekers unanimously believed in discrimination to prevent segregation. So even the African-American residents of Village Creek agreed that they wanted to maintain this specific racial balance. Right. So these are both white and black families saying, we are all living here because we wanted to live in an integrated community. So it's black people saying, we do not want more black families on the street. And white people also saying the same thing because they were... They were trying to support their covenant, and that's, I think, was the root of of this issue. That was the root of the issue for people already living in Village Creek. It's not the same situation, really, and I don't want to go too far with this metaphor, but it does make me think a lot about the issue that um, the Hartford schools are currently having with the magnet school program and the problem of trying to maintain a specific racial balance in the schools, which does then result in seats in these schools going vacant and not being given to children of color from the city because they're being held for um, white children from the suburbs. So I don't want to go too far down that path, but... It's a good point. Right, yeah. and you're right. It's not a, It's not this idea of discriminating against individuals to maintain a specific racial balance in the pursuit of equity is a very fraught, difficult subject. Right, right. right. How did Vaught feel about this? Was he sort of convinced that this was fair? So I think it's really interesting to think about how Vaught must have felt in this position. He was quoted in the Fairfield County Courier in 1969, saying that this was not a sophisticated matter of benign quota, but simply discrimination. He was a black man being denied purchase of a home. That house may have been in a progressive and inclusive neighborhood, but what difference did it make to him? The house could have been anywhere. It could have been in Levittown. It almost wasn't even about the house for him. It was the principle of the matter that he was being discriminated against. Right. You can understand why he would feel that way. So what was the resolution to this? How did they? How did it turn out for Vaught and Village Creek? Well, the Bridgeport Superior Court spent years deciding if the actions of the Village Creek Association violated Connecticut statutes. And the local NAACP chapter sided with the Village Creek Association. I think that's fascinating. The case was actually dropped when the association found some white buyers for a house in the neighborhood, and Vaught was then allowed to purchase the home he initially wanted for his family. The balance then would be the same. So they keep the balance by getting some white families into the right. section of right. town. Okay. So no hard feelings, right? Yeah, sure. This was not the only time these exceptional situations arose in Village Creek. Our collection of materials provides an exceptional look into how the community dealt with maintaining inclusive policies while still abiding by their overarching covenant. These records show trial and error, failures, successes, genuine cooperation, empathetic discussion, and true democratic assembly. It provides insights into how the small experimental community, which was one of the first of its kind in the nation, tried to tackle the larger race issues that the country was grappling with. They show that these questions were not easy to answer, these same questions that our country continues to struggle with to this day. Does Village Creek... I mean, it physically still exists, but it does it still exist as a cooperative community? Yes, it does. They celebrated their 60th anniversary in 2010. Pete Seeger actually played at that. That's kind of appropriate music, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'll also note that Village Creek is much more culturally diverse than it was in the 50s and 60s. It's not so much about white and black people. I think um, their covenant has sort of shifted to include people from all backgrounds, Um and Roger Wilcox, the initial founder of Village Creek, passed away in 2017, but his legacy certainly lives on. This year, Village Creek will celebrate its 69th anniversary. All right. Thank you to Melika Bloom, our exhibit developer. If you want to learn more about Village Creek, 
you can visit the CHS, uh, come to our research center and look through the Village Creek Association archive. You can also come and check out the exhibition, Patios, Pools, and the Invention of the American Backyard Exhibit, which runs through February 23rd, 2019. It highlights images and film footage of Village Creek residents in the 1950s and 60s. Thank you for listening. I'm Natalie Belanger. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Village Creek Association, visit the Connecticut Historical Society's Research Center and visit their special exhibition, Patios, Pools, and the Invention of the American Backyard, a traveling exhibition by the Smithsonian Institution on view through February 23, 2019. And for more great Connecticut stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. The current issue is about our creative history, and the upcoming spring issue explores in a surprising variety of stories how important water is to Connecticut's history. Find out more at ctexplored.org. We wish to thank Natalie Belanger, CHS Adult Programs Manager, and CHS Exhibit Developer, Melika Bloom. This episode was produced by Natalie Belanger and Patrick O'Sullivan. Music on this episode is by Miles Elliott. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time when we take a road trip to Sharon to find out how the doctors in this small Connecticut hill town have been the force behind centuries of improvements in American medicine. Sharon Cures, next time on Grading the Nutmeg.